Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. It's 8.30 on Thursday, March 7th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, learn more about a new bill that could be sending teachers to school armed. Then we'll talk to an expert on who says, as tobacco taxes go up, the number of smokers goes down. And in our book club, the tale of the Tupelo tornado in Minro's Gwyn's promise. Plus, we'll hear from this year's Poetry Out Loud winner, and claire Franklin. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A bill that would give Mississippi school districts the option of arming staff passed the Senate 27 to 18. Republican Senator Briggs Hobson of Vicksburg says an enhanced concealed carry law already allows permit holders to have firearms at universities, colleges and schools. He says a Senate amendment adds 36 hours of firearms training, psychological screenings and annual shooting tests. Senator Hobson spoke with MPB's Desiree Fraser. This is an optional program for any school district in the state or any college or community college. Current law allows school districts to authorize enhanced carry permit holders already in their schools. Uh, What this does, it sets up a rigorous training program. If someone is going to be an enhanced carry permit holder in the school, um, requires them to go through this program, be certified to handle particular things that could happen in the school, Uh, and make sure they're properly trained. And with the amendments that were included by Senator Blackwell, it's actually going to make the training even more rigorous and hopefully make someone more prepared in the event that you do have a crisis at a school. So you're saying the concealed carry already applied to schools? There are two different versions of concealed carry. One is just a basic level concealed carry. Then there's something called enhanced carry. Currently under the law, an enhanced carry uh, permit holder can carry in schools right now. That's been the law in Mississippi. And I think that's what a lot of people didn't realize when this uh, amendment came out. I think they thought that it was not allowed, but as a matter of fact, it is allowed in schools already. This just sets up a procedure by which those persons who are designated to be uh, ones that could carry uh, would go through a rigorous training program to make sure they're uh, properly equipped to handle situations. What does the amendment do specifically? It just sets up a little bit more rigorous training. It it requires, I think the original bill had uh, a minimum of 12 hours of training in addition to what you already get in enhanced carry. And this adds up to 36 hours of training. Uh, It does require annual screening and annual shooting proficiency. So those are things I think that make um, uh, any persons that are licensed permit holders under this bill to make sure that they're properly trained to handle situations. And again, I want to emphasize, this is not mandatory at all. This is only if that particular school wants to do it. Senator Briggs Hobson. Democratic Senator Tammy Witherspoon of Magnolia voted against the bill. She doesn't think guns at schools is the answer to combating mass shootings. 
Well, what concerns me, um, as a matter of fact, when we was debating the bill, it was a news that came, newscast that came over where a student was shot at Jackson State University, and that's what concerns me that it'd be too much of it. You know, everybody feel that they can carry it. I know, you know, there's a law to kind of control it, but it'd just be too much of it, and, it, and I'm afraid that it may just get out of control. Some might say it's out of control now. It is. It is. You're absolutely right. It's out, it's out of control now. And I'm afraid that it may even get worse. What do you think the answer is? Well, as I say, uh, some of the answers can be more background check, uh, mental health background check, raising the age limit, uh, more law enforcement, disability for law enforcement, but definitely not more guns. Senator Tammy Witherspoon with our Desiree Frazier. Critics have also expressed concern that guns could be allowed at high school and college sporting events. They would not be allowed as long as law enforcement officers are present. Hear from the expert who says, as tobacco taxes go up, the number of smokers goes down. That's next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On the next Fresh Air, we remember comic and comedy club founder Barry Crimmins. He died last week at the age of 64. He was sexually abused as a child and became an activist trying to stop pedophiles operating on the Internet. We'll listen back to our 2015 interview with Crimmins and his friend comic Bobcat Goldthwait, who directed a documentary about Crimmins. Join us. Today at 3 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A leading expert says the number of smokers could go down in Mississippi if the state had a higher cigarette tax. Mississippi's tax of 68 cents per pack is currently number 38 in the country. The average of all 50 states is $1.72. Dr. Thomas Payne is professor of orthology at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He also directs the ACT Center Tobacco Treatment Program. Dr. Payne tells MPB's Ezra Wall a tobacco tax increase could prompt some smokers to attempt to quit. There's a good bit of evidence that it improves uh, and enhances the number of people who want to quit, who make attempts to quit, and who are successful. So, for example, lots of states have done studies that when they increase the cost of a pack of cigarettes through the tax system, uh, more individuals make an effort to quit. Uh, the, the relationship has basically been shown to be that about a 10% increase in the cost increases about 4% of the individuals who will then ultimately quit subsequent to that. You mentioned before our conversation uh, began that some people see it as a little bit mean-spirited that you take somebody with an addiction and you simply charge them more right. for, the, for the product that they're addicted to. Right. You know, while I don't want to downplay that even if that happens, we still get more people quitting. So the outcome still is good. I just think it's better if you then use that money in a way that subsidizes the treatment efforts and such to some degree kind of thing. So, But yes, increasing the disincentives to individuals for using tobacco clearly helps more people to make the decision 
you know, enough of this. It's getting too expensive, et cetera. It's time for me to stop. I've wanted to quit anyway. Let me just go ahead and do it. You know, and other things like insurance companies raising the cost for people who smoke. We know that, again, helps people to move along that continuum of readiness, take the jump and go ahead and, and, and make an effort to quit. So we'll talk about Mississippi specifics in just a second, but what are one or two of the more more extreme examples or some of the some of the examples of states where they're really heavily taxing the activity of smoking and what results are they finding? So I think if you'll remember, when we raised the taxes here, 60 cents to bring it up to 68 cents a pack, Mississippi was at that point in the middle of the pack of states. We're now back down at the bottom because so many states have raised it so much more. Many states on the coasts, um, more populated states have done substantial increases to their to their taxes. Three, four dollars a pack is not at all unusual. New York uh, State, actually, at this point, I believe, has the highest state tax. But if you live in New York City, New York City also levied an independent tax upon that. And so living in New York now in New York City is the highest amount, and it's uh, well over $10 a pack at this point to to smoke. That's a significant decision to make on and most people's budgets. How is that reflected in the rate of smokers in New York? Right. Now, it's a little hard to tease out what effect each little piece has because they also do some treatment stuff and whatever. Okay. But New York City and, and New York is amongst the lowest uh, prevalent states. I, I believe the, the last I looked, the prevalence in New York City is maybe about 11 to 12 percent right now. So that's much lower than the uh, right now we're at about 16 percent nationally overall. So it is, uh, you know, a, a good percentage lower than that. And the thought is, is that the taxes have contributed to that outcome. What is the rate in Mississippi of people who smoke? We're a bit higher than the national average. I don't have the exact figure, but I'm going to say it's somewhere around 18, 19 percent, I think, of, of adults who use tobacco. So we are coming down, but it, it's a, a bit slower. I, you know, I know that's something that's on the table for consideration. I think it's a good idea. Again, I would encourage uh, the consideration of using, if there are additional revenues used there to, uh, to facilitate tobacco control efforts if possible. But any way we do it, I think we get some benefit out of it. If uh, the tax on cigarettes per pack in Mississippi is 68 cents currently? Uh, that's right now, yes. So what happens, uh, one of the numbers that we've heard a lot is some advocates are pushing for it to be raised to $1.50 a pack. Right. What happens to Mississippi's smoking rate theoretically if it goes from 68 cents to a $1.50. The average pack of cigarettes in Mississippi right now, I think, is in the 5 to $6 kind of range. So a dollar increase is about a 15% or so. So I would expect of the base of tobacco smokers uh, for that to drop maybe 4 or 5% as a function of that sort of thing. So that would be a sizable uh, effect, really, and, and uh, a welcome boost to our efforts here. It would. But we should point out that uh, waiting for legislators to do something like raise the cigarette tax or whatever, certainly not the only means available Correct. for people to quit smoking. And you run the ACT Center at right. uh, UMMC. Tell me how people can get in touch with the ACT Center if they want to quit smoking. Read about it on our website, ACT to Quit. That's A-C-T the number two, Q-U-I-T. 
org. There's no commitments. You know, people can just decide if they want to go forward with it. But we have a regular ongoing program with opportunities to come in during the day, in the evening, et cetera, to uh, accommodate different uh, work schedules, et cetera. And we enjoy what's seen in the literature as a, a very good success rate in helping people to quit. Dr. Thomas Payne is director of the ACT Center and a professor of otolaryngology at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thank you again, Dr. Payne, for joining us. You're very welcome. Several bills offered in the Mississippi legislature this year could have raised the cigarette tax in Mississippi from 68 cents a pack to a dollar or more per pack. Those bills are all dead at this point, but there is one bond bill that could be amended to include a cigarette tax hike. Author Minrose Gwynn's novel Promise tells the title tells the tale of the Tupelo tornado and it's next in the book club. This is Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. As donors, we know that MPB makes a difference. Felder on MPB Radio was the catalyst that inspired us to include tea production on our blueberry farm. Our business continues to grow. That's That's our our MPB MPB story. This is Mississippi Edition. Min Rose Gwynn is a teacher, editor, and author of cultural studies books. She hails from Tupelo, the backdrop for her new book, Promise. The novel looks at racial injustice and its effects as two women of different races and ages fight for the same purpose, family survival during the Great Depression. It's a subject she knows well as she focuses much of her work on issues of social justice. The former newspaper reporter and award-winning writer tells us more about the Tupelo tornado of 1936, which she covers in Promise. Everyone says it roared in like a runaway train around 9 o'clock the night of Palm Sunday, April 5th, registering an F5 on the Fajuda scale, which is the highest level on the scale. It leveled about half of the town, and that was a town of about 7,000 people at the time. The official death toll was 233, and around 1,000 people were injured many of them quite seriously injured. Based on these figures, the tornado in Tupelo of 1936 is still today the fourth most deadly tornado in the history of the country. As it turns out, that number of 233 is not really an accurate count. Can you explain why? The official death toll and injury toll were not including the members of the African-American community of Tupelo. Now, that community made up one-third of the towns at the time, and many of those residents lived on a high ridge called the Hill in the northwest part of the city, and their houses were often not as well-built as members of the white uh, communities were, they were blown off that hill down into a small lake called Gum Pond below it. And many were buried under debris in Gum Pond and therefore drowned. And so we don't know how many were uncounted, what their names were, or much information at all about them. How did what you've just described inform what you ended up writing, a novel? Sometimes I think that history clears too tidy a path for the past. And I felt that sometimes it takes a story, a fictional story, to show the mess and the confusion and the anguish of the historical moment. 
what it felt like to live and breathe in that moment in all its human complexities. I really think that sometimes fiction can speak truth to history, and sometimes fiction can be, in a sense at least, truer than fact. I'm a fiction writer, and I just felt compelled to try to jump in where there was a big gap in the history and try to fill that gap in in some limited way. Can you tell us about the characters and how they speak to that? Much of the book is a balancing act between two main characters. One character is an African-American great-grandmother named Dovey, and she is a laundress who has taken in the clothes of the white families in Tupelo her whole life, ever since she was eight years old and was orphaned. And then the other main character is Jo, who is a 16-year-old white girl, and their families are connected and bound together through this act of sexual violence perpetrated by Joe's older brother upon Dovey's granddaughter. Both of these two women are looking for these two missing baby boys in the aftermath of the storm. One of these baby boys is Dovey's great-grandchild, Promise, and the other baby boy is Joe's little brother, Tommy. These boys are the same age, four months old. There are many stories of flying babies in these stories of the tornado. My own grandmother found a dead baby girl in her crepe myrtle bush in the front of her house and brought her into the house and put her on the kitchen table and wrapped her in a dish towel. And so there are many stories of these babies who were misplaced, just blown out of their mother's arms. So that's what the story is about. And the story develops in alternating chapters between the African-American character and her community and her perceptions of the world around her in this devastated landscape and this naive, young, white, teenage girl and her perceptions of what's going on in this devastated landscape. The book is called Promise, and I've been speaking with the author, Minrose Gwynn. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Coming up next, hear the winning recitation from this year's Mississippi winner of Poetry Out Loud. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. MPB's digital media workshop for high school students was amazing. I learned new skills, and now I'm pursuing a career in film production. That's my MPB story. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This year's Poetry Out Loud State Recitation Contest winner is excited to be heading to Washington, D.C. to compete for the national title. Anna Claire Franklin is a junior at Oxford High School. She's also the daughter of novelist Tom Franklin and Mississippi Poet Laureate Beth Ann Fenley. She talks with MPB's Ezra Wall about the pressure of being known as the daughter of writers and about winning Poetry Out Loud on her first try. So how, how long have you been involved in Poetry Out Loud? Is this your first year? Uh, yes, sir. This is my first year. And you won already. What does that feel like? Um, it feels like lots of emotions, and I can't really pick one, but I am about to cry. <laughs> Tell me first, how many poems you have had to learn through the course of, because I know there's several rounds of competition, yes, how, how many poems have you had to learn in order to prepare for today? 
Well, I learned four because I actually did a different first poem at my school competition than I did at regionals and then state. So I learned four overall. When you pick, which remind me which poem you recited in the last round? I recited Confessions by Robert Browning. And so when you pick that one, what goes through your mind when you're choosing that poem? Is it is it because that's your favorite or is it because that's the one that you perform the best, for lack of a better term? Um, well, it's probably my favorite in terms of the fact that it's a very mischievous poem, but it's very romantic at the same time. And it's also kind of a social commentary on classism in the church. And I mean, there's just a lot going into it. And it's like this crotchety old man. It's just more fun than a lot of the older poems I've been reading. And I feel like I can kind of connect with it more. Classism in the church. You know, you're in Mississippi, right? Uh, no common. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so you're from Oxford, a very literary town. I saw your mom over there, very literary family. You're uh, obviously uh, uh, connected well to that to that world. Is that is that is that amount to extra pressure on you in a thing like this, or does that make it uh, uh, better for you to uh, have sort of a basis to stand on? It's definitely extra pressure because people expect me to do well because of who my parents are. And a lot of the times they don't actually credit anything I do to me. I'll write an essay in class and they say, oh, that's your dad or oh, that's your mom when it's I who wrote it and it's I who am presenting it. So it's like I have to live up to expectations that, I mean, got placed on me before I came out of the womb. So what comes next for you? I know a trip to Washington is in your future, right? Yes, sir. In April. Are you looking forward to it? I am. It'll be my second time in Washington, D.C., but I'll also probably be too nervous to actually breathe the whole time. What, uh, what poems will you perform there? The same, the same set? Um, I think I might switch out Confessions because it is a little hard to understand your first time, but I do believe I'll keep Diameter and I go back to May 1937. Well, count me among the people who thought that you did a very good job, and congratulations. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Anna Claire Franklin is the winner of the Poetry Out Loud 2018 Mississippi Resuscitation Contest. Here she is reciting her winning poem, Confessions, by Robert Browning. Confessions by Robert Browning What is he buzzing in my ear? Now that I come to die, do I view the world as a veil of tears? Ah, Reverend sir, not I. What have you there once? What have you again where the physic bottles stand on the table's edge? Is a suburb lane with the wall to my bedside hand. That lane sloped, much as the bottles do. From a house you could descry or the garden wall. Is the curtain blue or green to a healthy eye? To mine, it serves for the old June weather, blue above lane and wall. And that farthest bottle, labeled ether, is the house o'ertopping all. At a terrace, somewhere near the stopper, there watched for me, one June, a girl. I know, sir, it's improper. My poor mind's out of tune. Only there was a way you crept close by the side to dodge eyes in the house, two eyes except they styled their house the lodge. What right had a lounger up there, Lane? But by creeping very close, with the good wall's help, their eyes might strain and stretch themselves to O's, yet... Never catch her and me together. 
as she left the attic there. By the rim of the bottle, labeled ether, and stole from stair to stair, and stood by the rose-wreathed gate. Alas, we loved, sir, used to meet. How sad and bad and mad it was. But then, how it was sweet. Anna Claire Franklin will represent Mississippi in the National Poetry Out Loud Recitation Contest in Washington, D.C. in April. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10 o'clock, it's Season Pass. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu.